You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. the Marindas with We Sing Until Sunrise. I'm Iris and you're now tuned into Queering the Out on 3CR Community Radio 855am streaming live at 3cr.org.au and on demand and podcasted. First I'd like to give an acknowledgement 
of country that I'm broadcasting over the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. Indigenous sovereignty has never been ceded, genocide is ongoing, and so is colonisation. The struggle for land and justice continues, and settlers like myself have the responsibility to act in solidarity. First, I'd like to speak to two things. The pandemic and state abandonment has really escalated recently, particularly in Western, so-called New South Wales. We're seeing First Nations communities turned away from hospital and told to get Uber Eats when deliveries are over at least 200 kilometres away. If listeners can, I'd urge them to support communities affected, such as in Wilcannia. It's been up to grassroots communities and organisations to provide for people's needs in the face of state failures. The local Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Service, Murray Ma Health, is accepting donations. Their BSB is 062513 and account number is 101-50588 and you must indicate it is a donation. Also in the news, the US and its allies are withdrawing from their imperial occupation of Afghanistan. They have a long history of supporting fundamentalism like with the Taliban, when it suits them geopolitically, going back decades, and now during this transition. Let's not forget to the war crimes of the Australian military in Afghanistan, killing at least 39 Afghans according to their own reports. To quote queer Afghan writer Babak Sayed in Junkie, The cheat words of an apology don't amount to much. Afghans demand justice. Right now, the best way for Australia to display some degree of remorse for its documented war crimes in Afghanistan is to accept the six recommendations of action for Afghanistan. This means committing to an additional humanitarian intake of 20,000 Afghan refugees, prioritising the most vulnerable, such as women, journalists and activists, artists and critics, and Hazaras and LGBT people. A humane policy shift from Morrison would also expedite the resettlement of Afghan interpreters, grant permanent protection visas to Hazaras on temporary protection visas in Australia, and grant immediate amnesty to all Afghan nationals currently in Australia who rightfully fear having to return to a very different Afghanistan. And I'll provide a link on the podcast page occurring the to donate to Kenya and on action in Afghanistan. Now onto the interview for today's show. For nearly five years, Latoya Rule has been fighting for their brother, Wayne Fowler Morrison. Rajari Kugatha and Rangruman, who died in hospital after being aggressively restrained by prison guards on remand in Yatala Prison, Corona Country in South Australia. We hear about the circumstances of Wayne's death, the silence in the inquest, creative action, and on abolition politics. A content note that the following does contain descriptions of state violence and circumstances around the black death and custody that some listeners may find distressing. We start off by hearing Latoya introducing themselves. So I'm Latoya Aroharu. I'm an Aboriginal and Māori Takatāpui person, so a queer person. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm currently residing on Gadigal land in Sydney. And I've just moved here at the beginning of this year, previously uh, born and living on Ghana land in South Australia, where my family, yeah, my siblings are from culturally and Wayne as a Gugutho and Wurrungal person from the west coast of South Australia. So yeah, that's kind of how I'm situated in this yarn today. Okay, thanks. Thank you so much. So I guess first starting on 
what is sometimes disappeared by these like, horrifying deaths in custody. Would you like to talk about how you'd like Wayne to be remembered? Absolutely. So thank you for asking. Um, it's not every day that people actually consider who Wayne was as a person. Wayne was an artist, a fisherman, my elder brother, so I'm the youngest of five. He was the second after my eldest brother. He was eccentric. He played all different types of guitar. Electric was my favourite. He was a chef. So, yeah, he kind of just moved around to different careers and liked to try try all different things around and push himself, I guess, to learn new things. He was a dad, so to my niece, um, who's obviously hasn't hasn't got a dad anymore. The, I guess the sad aspect of that is that she'll have to go on not knowing her dad. And my sibling's father also passed at a young age. And so there's real systemic issues here in my family that sadly have now been placed on her life as well. So I'm always thinking about the young people and the kids who are affected by deaths in custody as well, who don't always have a voice like us adults do around what's happening and the impact. But Wayne was such a loving dad and, and a loving brother as well. The last time I spoke to him, he was actually asking. It was quite a while ago now, but he was asking about how he could have been involved in the stop force closures of Aboriginal communities protests. I think that was in 2014 or 2015, so about a year before he passed. And we lived on opposite sides of the city, so we didn't get to see each other too much towards the later time in his life. He was my brother. He was a normal, loving, funny brother. Thanks for that. The toll of these black deaths in custody in particular is just devastating and ongoing in the colony. Would you like to talk broadly around the circumstances of Wayne's death and your reflections on any key learnings from the inquest that ended some months ago? So, to our knowledge, and again, it's been five years, almost on the 26th of September this year, it will be five years, 2021. So, five years ago, at the time I was working in a social work organisation, a homeless day centre in Adelaide, and I was working in my capacity as a social work placement student. And I was running the prison helpline for housing at the time that connected all South Australian prisoners, um, people in prisons and prisons to this line so that when people were about to get released, they could call up the line and, and see if we had anything to provide them. And so during that process, I learned that my brother Wayne had been in custody and that he was sent to a high to medium security prison, Yatla Prison in Adelaide, and that he, my mum had gone and seen him and that he had been out fishing all day and was quite exhausted. He wanted medical care and he had a headache. I don't know if he was widely conscious or not at the time. But I just know that my mum said he had needed medical assistance and that I don't think he was seen at all. 
to my knowledge, by anybody at the time. And so I learned only a few days later after his initial arrest that he was locked up. This was his first time in prison. He had never had run-ins with police before, to my knowledge. And, yeah, I'm sure it would have been a really scary place for anybody, let alone an Aboriginal man from South Australia, with a name that's very widely known in the prison system, sadly, from his side of the family, to go in and into that space. It must have been very scary. And so he was on remand for six days, So on the Friday when he was due to face court to get bail, that we expected a home detention bail application, I had a few addresses waiting for him. My mum's address was deemed, I guess, incompetent or like it wasn't accepted due to the fact that she couldn't get Wi-Fi or a, a connection where she was because she was living in the hills at the time. So being on home detention, you need to be able to have a line of connection if they need to call you and the home detention officers need to come through. And so we put forward these addresses and it was, we were told, you know, that we would probably just come back to the court at a later date. But at the time, somebody ran in with a note for the court, just an administration person, and said that Wayne wouldn't be able to show up. So the magistrate just told us, Actually, Wayne's not coming. We'll yeah, we'll probably come back to the court later. We don't know what's happened. And I believe Timmy seemed to say that the note was very encrypted and that he really didn't know what had happened, but just told us a way to go away, I guess, and do our own research and call the prison to check where Wayne was. That led to many hours of trying to find out where Wayne had been taken. We were never told anything about what had actually happened to him until that night. And even then, the details of that were really vague. What we knew was that we were sitting out in the car park. We received a call from Aboriginal Legal Rights much later to say that he'd been taken to the Royal Adelaide Hospital and was in intensive care on life support. We then saw a media release on the television by the his chief executive of corrections, he told the public that essentially a violent incident had occurred and that officers were injured and that somebody was in hospital. So there was a lot of sympathy toward the officers. There was a lot of care and we sent our condolences to the officers. But for Wayne, there was not much of anything at all and not anything for us. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. We were visited by some staff at the from the prison, including the Aboriginal Liaison Officer, who I had been calling that week. As I said, in my capacity as a social worker, I was calling to see if they could visit Wayne. I was calling every day to just tell him, hey, this is my brother. We haven't heard anything from him. This is how he went into the prison. What's been going on? Please just go see him. He gave me his word that he would. And, of course, on the Friday he stood before me with nothing much more to say and about what had happened. And I asked why he didn't visit Wayne, why nobody visited Wayne after our advocacy and they had nothing to say about it. So, of course, we went up and saw Wayne. We were 
I had to go up with security. Only two family members were allowed at the time in the room. The whole process was just so disgusting and so re-traumatising for us. There were run-ins that our family had with the security there because not only were the police up until the final moments of Wayne's death and other corrections officers were watching Wayne's body that entire time and us knowing that an incident had occurred in the prison, you would think that this would be a situation of bias at least to ensure Wayne's safety. We, we felt so unsafe that there were officers right outside watching him and watching us. But then there was security as well after we had Aboriginal Affairs remove the officers from overseeing his body continually. There was then security placed there which done and acted in exactly the same way that when it came to saying goodbye to Wayne and it came to turning off the life support machines, they literally physically stopped us from going in the room as a family together. So these incredible pinnacle moments were completely removed for us, from us as a family. And that's, again, just such an, a testament to the way the state enacts the further criminalisation of the wider community when one Aboriginal person passes. We had elders outside the hospital also trying to get in who have been and had been, some have passed away now, but visitors to prisons for many, many years where this oversight does exist so that Aboriginal elders can go in and check on people and offer that cultural support. We had that standing by for us and for Wayne, but they were denied entry as well, completely into the hospital. And so, of course, our suspicion was growing about what we deem and what I personally deem still today as a cover-up of my brother's death and the true story of what happened. And that narrative from the hospital to today has continued. So afterwards, my response after seeing Wayne die and after the the support life support machine was turned off in complete shock, I walked at 4am from the hospital down North Terrace to Parliament and I sat on the steps waiting for the Premier to come out in the morning and come to work in the morning so I could tell him that my brother had just died. That was on Monday morning. That Monday we had already as well organised a media conference at Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement to speak about what had occurred. We didn't expect Wayne to die. So we, instead of showing up to a media conference talking about what had happened and that my brother was now in ICU. It was the story of actually overnight, a few hours ago, he's just died in front of us. And we had to then speak to media. Really raw, you know, I hadn't showered, I hadn't gone home. I'd been sitting on the steps of Parliament to then, yeah, have to give a media conference. It was just such a hard time. But again, that entire process of cover-up has just continued to today. And as everybody would have seen who's been following our case, there's been multiple, multiple points of interjection, delays. The officers and their lawyers have tried to remove the coroner herself from the case, saying that she was biased. They lost that in the Supreme Court, so there was another delay. They've delayed the process. They've won the right to the right against self-incrimination, which means that when they showed up 
this year, finally, five years later, to face us in court, they didn't have to give evidence much at all. They were able to plead the right against self-incrimination and the right to silence. The things that they, for the most part, just said was their names and not much more after that, even to the point of asking what happened in the van or there were more than 14 officers present at any one time before the van and around the initial restraint of Wayne with the spit hood and cuffs and being carried from that waiting cell where he was waiting to be on that video link with us while we were in that court, just multiple officers, they sat there and tried to say, they claimed to be the privilege while they were sitting there and tried to almost say that they weren't even there, that they weren't present. They gave no information to say that they were actually present on the day. That's how deluded this whole process became. These men are not ghosts. They are not immortal. They are physical living bodies of which my brother is no longer. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty terrifying process that even the coroner has noted as been causing trauma and frustration for yourself and your family and everyone affected by this. It's pretty messed up. So sort of turning to your research and writing, how you've explored how blame for black deaths in custody is shifted from systemic colonialism and white supremacy and actors involved in these deaths and instead onto First Nations peoples. Would you like to speak to this particularly about so-called excited delirium that's come up in the inquest? So I think I'll take a step back and just talk about the different aspects really quickly of how Wayne was criminalised even further in the coronial. So one thing that happened to Wayne was that a spit hood was placed over his head. He was carried face down into the back of a transport van with eight officers inside. One was the driver. There were five officers in the back with him. There's evidence being given that their feet had to go somewhere. If he was laying on the back on his stomach in what they call the prone position, their feet had to go somewhere. Somebody was at the top of his head. So given the height of the van, I've sat in that van as well in the prison after Wayne died. And to see the lighting, to see the the structure of it, it's quite a small van. Obviously, it's a normal white transport van. It's not a truck. Officers' bodies would have had to be somewhere in that space as well, either on top of Wayne, which is the evidence I think that's being given in some part, or at least around Wayne, their, their bodies would have been on him. But prior to that, the carrying of him into that van, there's the footage of the officers physically using their force and their body upon Wayne as well in multiple ways. Along with the spit hood, flexi cuffs were put on his ankles and his wrists. And so, you know, that's the type of way that he was restrained. There's still no evidence given that he was necessarily spitting. There was evidence given that this is visual from the other officers. This isn't actual evidence in terms of material evidence. But there was witness gave that he had fluid coming from his mouth. But in terms of why they used a spit hood, I personally still don't know. And I personally think it's incredibly dangerous and did lead to part of his death. So his cause of death was restraint asphyxia, 
which means the way that he was restrained is suffocation. But that was partnered allegedly with a heart condition and essentially a heart attack. This idea of excited delirium comes then from the process of restraining Wayne and the alleged anger and vicious nature of what, you know, of who he was as Wayne and the terms used by a pathologist alongside excited delirium were things like genetic predisposition, superhuman strength. This is genuine language by a medical professional used in this court that Wayne allegedly had superhuman strength. And so this idea of excited delirium is that he was so excited, he became delirious and excited, you know, angry, superhuman, super strong, and essentially he just broke out. So they really do explain Wayne in animalistic terms, which we know, coming back to systemic colonialism, eugenics, social Darwinism, these ideas of black people more generally being seen as less than human, these were all used to configure Wayne as a criminal, to configure Wayne as, yeah, less than human and less than worthy of living. We know that this term, excited delirium, is almost all the time, and I haven't actually found a case myself of a term, a time where it hasn't been used against a black person. But yeah, it's it's nearly always used against black people, particularly in America. It's a very specific American term that's being used in cases where black people have been murdered by police and corrections officers um, and other authorities. So we know that there's a lot of research happening at the moment that is looking into the racialization of killing and of criminalization. And so excited delirium is an American term that's now being used in Australia in my brother's case and in another Aboriginal death in custody case not too long ago. And so the the term itself is not supported by many medical professionals across the globe. It's it's a very specific term that's so outdated, but that was actually never really founded on medical research, but more so just racism. And if people do want to know more about that, they can look at some of the reporting by Royce Kamelovs from Adelaide, who's been following our inquest, and he's done a little... Yeah, he's done a bit of research and written a few papers now and articles about this term, which have gone, thankfully, into the evidence for the coroner to have a look at and, you know, decide when she comes out with her recommendations. But we really need to start working more on these kinds of aspects that, for the most part, are allowing police and prison officers, white police and prison officers for the most part just to kill Aboriginal people with no convictions, which is, of course, what we've seen forever since colonisation. in peace, my uncle Mark Quayle. And to all my people who lost their lives at the hands of white police. Gonna shoot a brother in the back Black mother at her doorstep Impale a brother on a tall fence Another brother shakes Till he got no life left Take the body bag to the mish No respect, gunji bulls don't give a shit 
The young fellas get chased into the river and their bodies turn up and they're floating like shits. Burnt in the back till his body turned crisp. Blame for the rape cause she put liquor to her lips. He's bashed in the pack, he got broken in the bits. He's got his hands up, he's innocent, he didn't do it. Why my people gotta die? Ain't shit changed since we've been colonised We want land rights but there's no treaty inside And we still gotta fight to stop us Keep taking lives, I'm sick of it Sick of being traumatised, scrolling down my timeline See we lost another life, it's ridiculous I wanna heal as a nation But these ignorant dummies got me losing my patience But we still fight ah, Hold your feet, son In Miami we pray I pray that a small gear don't stay safe And I hope that our babies get to see better days Questioning if anything's ever gonna change Locked in the cell and the smell's real strange Locked in my mind but my brain ain't caged I'll never simulate, I'm a proud dual bay These whites of power need to get the picture If you don't stand with blacks, no, I ain't rocking with ya Black lives matter Our lives matter
You're listening to Crazy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on your AM dial, on digital radio, streaming live at 3cr.org.au, on demand and podcasted. The previous tracks were Barker with Our Lives Matter and Our Sky with Hariga Jalan. You've been listening to Latoya Rule. Latoya is an Aboriginal and Maori Takatapui researcher on taking their PhD at UTS on Gadigal land. They've been talking about the campaign for justice for their brother, Wayne Fallon Morrison, talking about the circumstances of his death, the coronial inquests, and next, creative actions and onto abolition politics. Sort of turning now to some of the ways you approach the inquest, there was a number of creative actions in the inquest that drew upon different groups and different networks you have. Would you like to speak on the creative actions during the inquest and any reflections you have on them? We've got some pretty cool stuff coming up as well. So to all the listeners, keep an eye out. I'm very excited for it. As at the moment, we are trying to legislate the ban on spit hoods. But we've already had an incredible victory. So during this year, you know, our coroner's case has been stalled many times. It started, I believe, three years ago. It's pretty hard to think about at the moment, but I think it properly started in 2017, 2018. And so this year... We, during the coroner's court, had allies dressed as prison officers and they had badges on them. There's quite a few photos put out about this online as well. They've had badges that say silent, to speak to the silence I explained that's been occurring in the court. And then we've partnered, I guess, Justice of Fella campaigners and our family have partnered with the Department of Home Affairs, shout out to our friends, and Matt Steak. And so collectively we have kind of looked at, yeah, how we can best represent what's occurring in the court. And so spit hoods were made, well, things that look like spit hoods. We weren't going to use actual spit hoods that they used, of course, but spit hoods and hoods were made and the front was a mesh fabric where you couldn't see the person's face, but the back is the Union Jack. And the Union Jack was all cut up and sewn back together to obviously express the Crown and the state's involvement in deaths. We had two actions. So the first one, they had blood on their hands, fake blood, and they jumped out of a van. And on the van, we had stickers that said, Ban Spit Hoods. And following that action, you know, we had a, the van pulled up and they came out and we had flowers and we made it a real memorial for our community and for our family to really symbolise the grieving process for us and the defiance, how we're defying brutality as a family and our resistance and our community. And so following that, on that day, we got back to the house and we saw in the media that a statement was put out by the correctional services to say that they had made the decision to ban spit hoods in all places of incarceration, in all prisons across South Australia. So that was so huge. We had been campaigning for five years to make that happen. Of course, they tried to say that they had made that decision a few days before and just crap like that. But we definitely forced that decision and there was no other reason for them to announce that at all. <laughs> so they even tried to steal that from us, which is fine. But now, of course, 
there's an election in March next year coming up in South Australia, and this means that because the ban on spithoods hasn't been legislated with a different parliament, and even now with this government, they can reinstate spithoods at any time. So to legislate the ban, it would mean that that decision is concrete and that we can trust that they won't be used again. We know that spithoods have been used in places like Dondale. We've seen with young Dylan Voller, a spithood placed upon him and him strapped to that chair. And just seeing those images was so shocking. And then, of course, on my brother's head as well. But we know that they're also used in mental health facilities. They're also used in hospitals. They're used yeah, in a range of other environments, including health settings. And so we, while we are campaigning for, you know, the legislative ad- abolition of spearhoods in all places of incarceration, we're also needing to extend that ban and are very aware of those who might have worn these when they are having a difficult time and trying to manage their mental health and well-being, which is so devastating to consider because for the most part, a lot of people associate spearhoods with prisons and criminalisation and they're able to step back and just say, well, that would never happen to me because I'm not in prison. I'm not a criminal. I've done nothing wrong. But when it comes to mental health, nearly everybody on this earth, particularly now, given that there's a global pandemic, has has had to consider their mental health, their feelings of anxiety, depression, the stuff that a lot of us do live with is affecting so many people and to know that anybody could have this spithood place upon them yeah, is, is, is very scary. So we've done that action and I feel like we were successful for the most part and now we're campaigning as a Justice Fella group and our group is made up of all different organisers, some from Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide obviously, the Northern Territory. We're just coming together to make sure that we can you know, get a concrete outcome on this and save lives. Awesome. And, yeah, I'll provide the link to the campaign, including the petition to ban spit hoods nationally in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah. Also, on our petition, we've already received over 26,000 signatures, which is huge. Black Lives Matter in America shared our petition, which is lovely to see all of the signatories around the globe also supporting this so this is a matter that's not just for South Australia and not just for Australia but you know the world is watching some of these issues that are occurring here against Aboriginal people and then obviously it got into Time magazine and the Washington Post and some of the bigger media outlets as well so we know that not only Wayne's story, but the story more widely of Aboriginal deaths in custody is travelling. And, yeah, that Australia should be aware, you know, that our government should be aware that they're on notice. Yeah, for sure. And listening to you there, like obviously international networks plays a role in your work. So I'm wondering what, yeah, what is the role that international networks and solidarity play in how you go about your work? I would say that some of the greatest... Uh, teachings I've been privileged to have have come from the global networks that I've been able to establish and that a lot of us have maintained. Back in 2019, 
we went to, Kalisha Morris and I went to Washington, to the March on Washington with the Indigenous Peoples Movement that we were invited to, I was invited to at the time as part of war. And going there and marching with other people, other Indigenous people and allies alongside issues of land justice, obviously justice issues and carceral abolition and issues that, yeah, looking at groups like Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, hearing those stories, it just gave me such a perspective of where we could be going next with our own actions. We also had a friend of ours from Turtle Island come over prior to that, I believe, maybe in 2016 or 2017, and they really spoke to me. They'd done a little masterclass in my room, in my bedroom, with a few of the mob who were part of war at the time and back in Adelaide. And, you know, they spoke through some of the strategies, running a protest, some of the aspects that we began getting really good at, street wardens, strategies of how to manage police, how to advocate to media. Like, we just learned so many different skills, I think, during that process. And, of course, when I was back in America with the Indigenous Peoples Movement, we also visited Patrice Cullors, who hosted us at the time, who's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. We went to an LA chapter meeting with, yeah, obviously LA Black Lives Matter advocates and just seeing how they organise their processes. They've got a youth chapter within their Black Lives Matter LA chapter. They've got a working group. They've got a legal group. They've got an educational chapter. You know, they've got all these different elements to make their movement move. And of course, the capacity issue back here in Australia is huge. We don't necessarily have that capacity just yet, but it just it just made me feel really inspired toward what we can build and where we need to be heading, I believe, to actually achieve some of these bigger changes and legislative changes and, yeah, really grow Aboriginal deaths in custody campaigning. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. And so that was huge for me. Alongside that, friends in Aotearoa, obviously I'm Māori as well, so connecting back there has been a huge part of my life with Indigenous Pacific Uprising. And over there we say we are Tangata Moana, so we're people of the ocean, we're connected by the ocean. And Australia is obviously part of that connected group. Um, There's been long histories of solidarity and mobilisation between the Pacific and Australia, and we say that Australia is part of the Pacific. So, yeah, just connecting back in there and gaining that support and having those yarns about that international solidarity building um, and movement has just been so incredible for my own strength, for my own spiritual grounding, for my own health and Just now, I've just gotten back to lockdown, sadly, on Gadigal land. But for the last two months, I've spent in Aotearoa as well, just having meetings with activists from local communities, having meet and eats with their communities and just listening to what's going on in Fiji with policing, you know, and how at the moment the police are allowed to just take, allowed to pull anybody over and take every single electronic device from them. So when we're talking in the context of Black Lives Matter and Cop Watch and filming the police, 
They can't do that there in Fiji. They will, of course, be arrested for filming, but even then they don't have a, a device to film. So how do we consider the safety of people in Fiji up against the police? So, yeah, really getting perspectives like that on what's accessible when we are campaigning, what strategies are accessible to different communities, obviously trans communities as well. We know that the freedoms many of us have around the world aren't accessible to particularly Pacific nations, to be honest. How religion plays a part and how culture plays a part and just all different aspects when we are thinking about policing and the most over-policed communities, of course, are trans women, particularly black trans women and Aboriginal women as well, you know. So yeah, just in terms of global solidarity, it's been massive. I, I really do have a heart and a passion for building that. I think that's something that we're yet to really sustain here in Australia as much as we could. But I know a lot of us are really trying to do that. And yeah, I guess watch this space. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for that contribution. Yeah, I was hearing a lot about how abolition or like resistance politics is like a building project. I guess it's sometimes represented as just being against things, but there's a lot in what you're saying that was like generative and about relationships. Absolutely. It's always about relationship building. And I think people are scared to talk about it, but I always do. It's about love for each other. I believe that the abolitionist movement is a love movement. It takes us back to our most human state of being. And as Aboriginal people, I feel, and Māori people, obviously, I feel like it takes us back to our most Indigenous way of being. And, of course, it leads to decolonisation. And we're removing genocide, we're removing violence, we're removing so much of the oppression that continues to impact our social and emotional well-being and intergenerational issues that we're facing continually. So, yeah, building love in the movement, building relationships, I think is the most formal way of doing and being abolition and walking out and practising abolition. You know, that starts at home. Shout out to West Papuans. West Papuans have a saying that's almost like their activist war cry, Kunumi Wane, the fight is in the house. And, you know, I take that really seriously because it starts at home. It starts in our local communities. And, yeah, that's that's where we need to build a lot of the time. Yeah, for sure. How specifically has abolition politics affected how you reach for justice? Like I'm thinking about debates around abolitionist reforms and reformist reforms. Do you have any thoughts in this area? It's definitely changed my concepts and obviously being in university now, I've been really privileged to have access to theories and learn about so much of history and so many of the leaders in that. And when I was in America, I got to sit down in Manhattan with Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore and I also have sat down in my time in my life with Angela Davis. And so those two together with critical resistance and the abolitionist movement has been, yeah, a a massive part of my learning, a massive part of our campaign. It's definitely 
centred me to make the decisions that I make around the language that I use. Even yesterday, some friends and I writing have just written a review of a documentary that's coming out shortly and just our terminology that we're using to reinforce the issues that we're experiencing. We make sure that we kind of centre an abolitionist approach just even in the language that we use today and make sure that we're not perpetrating or supporting or sustaining thoughts and systems and language that props up the colonial state. So it's really become every part of me. Of course, abolition is a dirty word in Western politics and in Western legal systems. It's not something that's seen today as a viable option of moving forward. And that's okay. That's just the mentality, the limited mentality of the state, of course. But, yeah, abolition really does connect me and our movement to the world. And I think that it's something that a lot of us have had the privilege of standing upon, you know, those shoulders of abolitionist giants. Of course, I take the stance, like Angela says, that we have to imagine that radical change and radical transformation is possible. We have to consider that every day. We have to walk that out every day. And it is almost like an abolitionist imaginary. And it's about dreaming up future possibilities. But I'll tell you right now, when you are a black person in Australia, surviving under the colony, You don't always hope or dream much for yourself. I never expected to be alive this long and I've just turned 29 last week and this is the age Wayne died. This is the age Wayne was killed at. That stuff goes through my mind so it's quite hard to dream up a future for myself and I'm sure a lot of other people from different backgrounds can understand that when you're really uncertain of your future. So abolition actually gives me hope it gives me a future and it gives me a a place to be able to dream where I'm accepted and I'm not shamed for dreaming up a life for myself that's different to what everybody is saying the outcome is for people like me thanks so much for that is there anything you'd like to add or touch on or people you'd like to shout out to I think just I want to shout out to obviously all the people in custody Today, all the people surviving in prisons, the people who are advocating for people in prisons and are working alongside people living in under the carceral state, those on home detention, those on parole, who are restricted by the carceral state and their movements are restricted. Yeah, I obviously just want to shout out to you. I have to acknowledge that while I have lived experience of losing a family member, and being impacted by the state, I don't have lived experience of being in custody, and that's something I can't speak to. But in every which way, I will try, and you know, a lot of us try our hardest to centre everybody's voices from that experience, and that really, really needs to happen more and more. We really need to highlight people who have direct experiences in custody in prisons to share their voices and their stories. Us as communities, you know, even if the state's not listening, we are. And we, yeah, just send all my love. Yeah, that's so crucial. Thanks so much for that, Latoya. And thanks for joining me on Community Radio.
Thanks so much for having me. It's been a long time coming, but I've really enjoyed it. It was a real privilege to speak to Latoya Rule. It's been some time since I was first going to interview them, but so great to finally do it. Support the Justice for Fella campaign on Facebook, the petition they have to ban spit hoods, and their campaign fundraiser on GoFundMe, which I'll also place links to in the show notes for Queering the Air. That's it for Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio today. You can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, or at queeringtheair at gmail.com. Up next is the incredible Salam Radio Show, so stay tuned to 3CR. I'll go out revving up the engine with June Jones and Gurion with their track, Motorcycle.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.